From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. You know, I, I feel like we should actually be doing the podcast outdoors today. It's, <laughs> it's the, the first really, really spectacular spring day of 2019, but we're, we're here at Podcast Central like we've been for the past three months and like we've been for the past three months. It feels like we've still got legislative issues to unwrap and unravel. Session's over, but now we're trying to figure out what it all means and how it's all going to play out. Yeah, that was a big part of our week, Kevin. Let's start with your big report looking at one of the biggest education initiatives of the year, Governor Brad Little and the legislature worked together to raise Idaho's minimum teacher salary. You took a deep dive at who this could affect, who's not getting that salary level right now. Um, But tell me a little bit about your project, about some of the numbers that you could have uncovered, and maybe what it might mean for some of our very beginning teachers. Yeah. So this kind of started out with a pretty simple math question that I had. As we watched the $40,000 minimum salary bill work its way through the legislature, I wanted to know, how many teachers are we talking about here? And when we have a math problem like that, we go to Randy Schrader, our our data guy, and have him run it to ground. And and he did. And the numbers are really interesting. And if you go to our story at news.org, you'll see the numbers. Let me give you some of the, the highlights. We're talking about 3,651 teachers across the state who right now make less than Mm $40,000 a year. So more or less, we're talking about, you know, a little bit uh, more than 20% of the task, uh, of the, uh, of the workforce, the teacher workforce. Something like 18,000 teachers, depending on how you count it. Yeah, it depends on how you count and, you know, how you count full time and, and so on. But roughly speaking, one in five teachers around the state are in line for an immediate pay raise because of this uh, piece of legislation that that passed. But as with everything related to teacher salaries, things really vary when you get down to the district and and charter level Um, because all the state law does is set a minimum, as we all know. And as we've talked about many times here, beyond that, it's up to the school districts and the charters to figure out their own salary schedules, whether they want to use the career ladder or not. So... What we found is that the Napa School District, third largest district in the state, actually has the most teachers under $40,000 a year in salary in the state, and by a pretty fair margin. Uh, West Ada, largest district in the state, comes in second. You're wondering where Boise is. Not even in the top 10. Yeah. Probably not surprising. As we've talked about uh, salary issues in the Treasure Valley, uh, no secret uh, Boise's salary schedule is uh, comes in higher than the neighboring school districts. That's been a, that's been pretty well documented over the years. So, no shocker there that we're talking about uh, a small number of teachers in Boise. There are actually some districts and charters around the state where everybody's already making more than forty thousand dollars a year. Blaine County being an example. But I wanted to look and spent a lot of the story looking at a couple of case studies of districts where maybe half or more of the teachers yeah. are going to be in line to get an automatic pay raise off of this $40,000 minimum. And I spent uh, a good deal of the story looking at Malad and Payette. Uh, the Oneida School District and the Payette School District are both border school districts. And it was really interesting to talk to the administrators about the challenges that they're having with uh, teacher recruiting and teacher retention and how this $40,000 minimum might or might not affect that. 
Yeah, it, it was good stuff. If you want to take a little bit closer look at the numbers, uh, see some districts close to you, find out uh, what's really going to happen, a good report available at the homepage over at IdahoEdNews.org. And we've we've talked about this before, but I, I want to say that the minimum state salary right now by law is something like $35,800. Mm-hmm. And it's going to increase to $40,000 over the next two years. And so it's going to ramp up a little bit next year, and then it will reach the 40000 minimum uh in two school years, right, Kevin? Right. Yeah, and again, districts can do whatever they want to do over and above yep. the minimum. So as I talked to um, the superintendent in the Oneida School District, he, he said that they're not just doing the minimum right now. They're not just doing the $35,800. they are they are adding $1,000 of their own money to the uh, salary schedule, but it's not doing them a whole lot of good. He, he says, you know, look, we go to Utah. We go to job fairs, and they laugh at us. They, yeah. they look at our salary compared to what uh, teachers can earn in Utah, and it's just no comparison. It's really hard to get a teacher to come to, to Malad and, and teach. Yeah, he said, look, we've got to go and find uh, teachers who have some ties to the area, uh, and sometimes we have to go the alternative route. Um, yeah. And I heard that from other uh, superintendents and administrators in eastern Idaho. You know, the, you know, the, the pressure from out of state uh, is really acute. Uh, the salaries are higher. Uh, you've got signing bonuses. More favorable tax environments in a couple of neighboring states without the uh, income tax, I want to say. And you've got loan forgiveness programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've heard those uh, discussed at the state house, but there's never really been much uh, momentum towards doing a teacher loan forgiveness program. That's the climate that uh, you know, the school districts uh, say that they're competing in and, and some of the pressures that they're feeling. You know, I, as I talked to, uh, to Rich Moore, and he's the superintendent in Oneida, I, I said, you know, okay, a $40,000 minimum in a town like Malad, a small town, uh, r- rural community, fairly low cost of living relative to the rest of the state, you know, what does that mean? What was a what what does a forty thousand dollar minimum mean, and is it really necessary? And he said, "Look, you know, I'm not just competing to find people to work in Malad. I'm not just um, you know, this isn't just you know, coming up with a salary yep. structure that makes sense in Malad." Um, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, forty thousand dollars a year in in Malad. That's big bucks, and people look at it as big bucks. But you know, he's." Competing as are all superintendents in a climate where there's a statewide teacher shortage, a national teacher shortage. So his argument is: Look, we've got to compete. We've got to be uh, in a position right. where we're offering something comparable to what uh, teachers can get elsewhere. So that was the recruiting end, and I, I found that really interesting. I talked to Robin Gilbert, the, the uh, superintendent in Payette, and her concern is really more on the retention end. And this is not a unique issue to Payette. But they're in kind of a unique situation in Payette. Um, again, a lot of teachers under that $40,000 salary, I, I want to say more than half of their teachers are under 40000 maybe about 45 teachers, as I'm trying to remember my numbers. But she said, look, we also have 28 teachers who are making more than $50,000 a year, where we have to supplement uh, to get that salary because we're only going to get $50,000. That's what the state tops out. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> but, you know, Pay it, add some money to that salary pool uh, to keep some of those veteran teachers because, as she said, look, these are our mentors, these are our, our best teachers, these are the you want to have your kids placed in, in classes with these teachers because they're our, our quality teachers, they're, they're veteran teachers. 
but it's a matter of how do you find the money at the local level to supplement those salaries. And, and a $40,000 minimum obviously isn't going to affect that at all. Right. So we kind of take a deep dive not just into how many teachers we're talking about, but we really try to look at the implications of this new salary. Uh, how does it affect the overall picture of teacher salaries in the state? And, and the takeaway that I heard from, from administrators, uh, from union folks, is this is a step towards uh, bringing uh, Idaho salaries in line with, uh, with other states and making Idaho more competitive but it's not a be-all, end-all. And if you feel like we've talked about this a lot and we've reported on this a lot, we have, but it's been a major issue. And this bill, this law now, to raise the minimum teacher salary over two years, combined with the work through the budget uh, to implement the fifth year of raises on the career ladder, are major objectives that the legislature has focused on really for the past five years, yeah. really since the 2013 task force report but I'm glad you mentioned something that Robin Gilbert said about retention because that could be an issue that we could see future legislative sessions addressing, particularly some of the Democratic members of the House and Senate Education Committee say, great, we made a lot of progress to address the recruitment piece of it. Now we need to meet the obligation with the retention piece. And some people still look back to one of the early career ladder proposals that talked about a $40,000, $50,000, $60,000, kind of a three-tiered scale there. We never got to the top end. Uh, and so it will be interesting uh, to watch the state revenue picture, to watch some of these other developments in education, to see if there is a healthy appetite to address the top end of the salary issue, to address that retention mm -hmm. piece. We hear about that, and that seems like it's gaining more and more speed and momentum. It'll be interesting to see if the new task force takes that up this summer. Right. I interviewed Jeffrey Thomas, who's the uh, superintendent in the Madison School District, and the first thing he said to me was... Uh, you know, the $40,000 minimum, that was my idea. You know, he was on Governor Otter's task force back in 2013. But what he suggested was a $40,000 minimum that is finally coming to fruition, but also that $50,000 mid-range salary and that $60,000 upper-end salary that the legislature never got to. The, the new minimum, I think it brings up some old concerns about teacher pay in Idaho and teacher salary initiatives in Idaho, that this is a... This is going to help newer teachers. It's going to help teachers at the, uh, the, at the starting end of, uh, of the career track. It doesn't do anything for veteran teachers. And there's a concern among veteran teachers that the state hasn't done enough. Yes, uh, the legislature has a master teacher premium uh, that's kicking in this year. And I think there were about $7 million put into the first year of that. But you've got to apply. You've got to be approved. Yep. It's a competitive process. It's a time-consuming process just to apply for it. You know, and I think what it underscores to me is that when it comes to veteran teacher pay and improving veteran teacher pay, there's no clear path forward you know, beyond the master teacher premium, which has its own uncertainties. There's no clear funding stream coming from the state. So local districts, if they want to supplement, they have to decide whether they want to use short-term supplemental tax levies. Do they want to use discretionary funding? Where do they want to try to come up with the money because there's no funding stream? The $40,000 minimum salary has a funding stream attached yep. to it over two years. And assuming the legislature pays for year two in 2020, it's paid for. Veteran teacher pay, veteran teacher pay increases, not paid for. Districts right. have to figure it out. Charters have to figure it out. 
So a very different environment when you start talking about the veteran teachers. Yeah, it remains an issue. It, it's something that will continue to follow. If you want to get caught up on your big story from this week, the homepage, idahoednews.org, is the place to look. But wait, there's more. There was still yeah. more that we're trying to unravel from this crazy 2019 legislative session. And you took a swing, Clark, at one of the craziest plot twists that we saw at the very end of the legislative session. A legislature that adjourned without really addressing rules, leaving a lot of rules in limbo. You tried to walk uh, walk readers through how that might play out. And you did get some answers. You did get some clarity, potentially, and some sort of a sense of how this might work. What did you learn? Well, I learned that Governor Little is going to have a busy summer. He and his staff <laughs> yes. are going to be reauthorizing on a temporary basis What's looking really like 8,200 pages worth of agency rules who's counting, yeah. that the legislature was essentially prepared to let expire uh, when they adjourned the session without addressing this. And obviously there was a sense from Speaker of the House Scott Bedke and some of the members of the legislature that yes, the governor would take this action and be able to reinstate them temporarily. Uh, but the legislature for the first time in years in years and years, uh, left town without passing. Sometimes it's called the drop-dead bill, but it's this bill to formalize the legislature's work to implement agency rules. And so what the heck are we talking about with rules? Uh, rules are extremely important in the state of Idaho for a couple of reasons, one of which is because there's so darn many of them. Uh, second of which, though, is because it really, this is an area that really affects Idahoans' lives. And rules do have the full force and effect of state laws we talked about last week. And they affect everything from academic standards, which were implemented uh, via agency rules, both what was originally called Idaho Core Standards and the Academic Science Standards, where mm -hmm. we had the debate over fossil fuels, human impact on the environment, and global warming. That all came uh, in the form of agency rules. Immunization guidelines yes. come in the form of agency rules. Many, many state fees, fees come in the form of agency rules, and many, many health and welfare and Medicaid rules and guidelines come in the form of rules. So that's just a flavor of how much these rules do affect everyday Idahoans' lives. And so what's going to happen, what we expect to play out, according to Alex Adams, a, uh, a top aide to Governor Otter, he's the DFM administrator. And he's kind of the rules guru now in the, in the little yeah. administration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He said... Uh, he, I sat down with him on Wednesday after the governor's press conference, and he wanted to make it clear to Idahoans uh, that there is some confusion out there, uh, but the governor's office is up to the task, and he wanted to ensure folks, particularly within education circles, that there will be, according to the governor's office, no disruption in state servants, services as this process plays out, and that Idahoans won't notice a difference in their day-to-day -day lives. Uh, he, and, I, and this was important because all across Idaho, schools are kind of winding up for the year. Yeah. And they're going to take the summer off. And so there was this giant question mark when the legislature adjourned. And so understandably, not only are taxpayers and citizens have questions, uh, but school administrators, school board members, school superintendents. Oh, my goodness. Where does this stand? Is this another headache that, that we have to look at and address. And so the governor's staff really wanted to make it clear that they expect no disruption in government services. They will reinstate rules on a temporary basis, and then that will kick them back to the legislature in 2020. And we can talk about that in a second. But along with the potentially 8,200-page 
uh, rule renewal process on a temporary basis. It does sound like the governor's staff is going to, uh, maybe pruning is the right word, but it's going to take a look at some of those rules. And maybe some rules will be let uh, to expire. But when I spoke to Alex Adams, he said education is not one of those topics uh, under consideration for, for cutting rules or letting them expire. So he wanted to assure people, uh, don't worry about this. We have a plan and it shouldn't affect your school. It shouldn't affect your life this summer was the main message I got uh, from the governor's staff. And not all rules are created equal. So That's the correct. definitions really matter. So the way the governor's office and the governor's staff renews these rules or addresses these rules will really determine how much uh, leeway the legislature has next year on, on the rules. And, and you You've got some detail about that in your story Thursday as well. Yeah, they're planning to renew them uh, in a way that they will come back to the legislature so that rather than both legislative chambers, the House and the Senate needing to approve most of these rules, uh, they would be able to be approved and go forward with uh, approval from one body, either the House or the Senate, except for fee rules. Fee rules are treated differently. Fee rules would need both chambers to sign off. But we do expect that it could be perhaps a more lengthy and in-depth rule review process next year because all of them would be coming back. Um, And so that could add a new dimension to the 2020 legislative session. It could open the door for some public hearings because it's not just the new rules that will be brought forward from the agencies this offseason. It will be rules that have been on the books for years and years and years. Right. And so it could open the door for some hearings on academic standards or immunization rules, common core science standards, health and welfare guidelines, graduation requirements. Some of those take the form of agency rule. And graduation requirements was one of the areas where the House Education Committee really uh, took a close look at rules this year, really scrutinized them, and in that way sort of foreshadowed the rules debate that extended the session and played out late in the year. I actually had kind of an interesting article that I'd been working on for a couple of weeks that we published earlier um, this week at Idaho Education News, kind of just looking at the House Education That's Committee's year this year. committee. It really was. A lot of new members, a new chair, a new vice chair, a lot of freshmen who weren't afraid to step up, to get in the mix, to sponsor bills, to step on toes. And so I had kind of a fun look at the House Education Committee, and the rules debate uh, was part of that story, and the House Education Committee really foreshadowed that. Um, So you can check out that story. But the overall issue of rules, it's a process that it's still very new. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're still just learning about it. There still may be some surprises along the way. Uh, But but what it looks like at at this hour— from what we know now, is that if you're on House Education and you wanted to repeal Common Core, if you wanted to repeal science standards, there's less of a clear path to do that than there might have appeared to be last week when this was a little bit less certain. If Governor Little brings these rules back in such a way that either the Senate Education Committee or the House Education Committee signs on and they become rules uh, on a permanent basis, it becomes a lot more difficult for House Education to, to veto, uh, to rescind Common Core or rescind science standards because you would have to have Senate Education sign off, which, which could happen, but you would have to have Senate Education sign off. And as we saw with science standards, it, it didn't work that way. So They would need some allies um, in the other chamber um, down the hallway for sure. They would need allies 
in uh, in the Senate is how it's looking at this point, for sure. But it's still quite possible, regardless of that, that you may just see House education and maybe a lot of these House committees that are much more strident about wanting to exert their authority over rules, they may force the issue and just have hearings and take the vote and force the Senate to go on record on some of these really hot button issues, whether it's academic standards or immunizations or, or you know, on down your list. I mean, there are, you know, rules can sometimes be really arcane, but sometimes they can really be uh, controversial as well. Well, that's a really good point. And that's another point that I kind of tried to explore in my little feature on the House Education Committee this year. Some of the members, particularly within the Republican wing of the House Education Committee, say that this was about the House Education Committee taking back its rightful place as the strong player in policy setting. Uh, that that's what we saw this year, that the House Education Committee is exerting uh, its authority, uh, is reasserting its authority to to legislate. Uh, I talked to Judy Boyle, a veteran member of the House Education Committee, who said that it's in our state constitution. The legislature needs to legislate. She said she felt hamstrung and handcuffed by the original task force recommendations and that they're looking to make some noise and they're looking to be the player uh, in education circles. I talked to freshman representative Bill Gosling, a Republican from Moscow, who actually helped sponsor that funding formula light bill at the end of the year. He said House Education is taking back its authority and the State Department of Education and the State Board of Education Need to take notice of that. And strong words coming from Bill Gosling, who served on the State Board of yeah. Education a few years back. I mean, so definitely there, there's a, a power struggle at play here, not just between the House and the Senate, but between House education and the stakeholder groups. Oh, for sure. And uh, the agencies. Some of the folks in my article talked about how they felt the stakeholders had too much influence. Um, and so that's perhaps going to be a source of tension you know, and, and it's one thing to say that, but I think we all remember, um, what was it, 2012, when the stakeholders played a large role in coming together to help overturn, uh, take your pick on how you refer to it, Props 1, 2, and 3, the Luna laws, the student comes first laws, we're all talking about the same thing. Sure. Stakeholders played a large role uh, in the in the overturning of the students come first law. Um there's still a lot we're trying to unravel on the rules issue, but we have uh, a pretty good sense of the state of play right now. Yep. Stay tuned. It's only eight and a half months before the next legislative session. Things are uh, apt to change. You spent some time, you, you talked about uh, spending some time with Alex Adams uh, Wednesday uh, talking about rules, but you also spent some time, uh, Governor Little, looking back on his first hundred days in office and you know, give us a sense of what he had to say and what the mood was and what sort of questions did he field and what did he have to say? Sure. And I mean, so, you know, keep in mind, this is uh, Governor Little's first year in office, press conference to commemorate the first hundred days. He started off kind of wanting to highlight uh, some of the successes and he brought it back to his state of the state address, talking about creating opportunities for Idahoans, their children and their grandchildren to remain in Idaho and to thrive. And he really held up education issues, education issues that we've already talked about on this podcast as sort of the cornerstone of those achievements, in particular, uh, the bill, the law to raise the teacher salary to $40,000 mm -hmm. that we talked about at the top of today's show. That was one of the big 
accomplishments. But you get uh, literacy. The literacy initiative, uh, the op- expansion of the Opportunity Scholarship. Uh, those were kind of the three tiers of the governor's education initiative. Uh, the governor had a lot of success on uh, steering those issues through the legislature to approval in what was generally kind of a stay-the-course year that was not a lot of wholesale changes or, or big departures. And so the first part of the press conference was really trying to highlight uh, those areas, uh, particularly as they relate to children and education. And then when the press conference started in terms of questions, I think that the governor may have been a little frustrated that a lot of the questions tended towards some of the unanswered questions that the legislature created when it left town. Like rules. Like rules. Like Medicaid. Like Medicaid. Like, like the initiatives. voter initiative bill uh, that the governor did veto. Uh, those questions really dominated the second half of the press conference. Um, and I, underst- I, I sort of understand both sides. I understand for most of the press corps, this was really uh, probably the second availability that the governor has had since the first day where he gave the state of the state address and then he did the, meet with reporters that day. There he was had a, a press club breakfast. A press club ble- breakfast. February. In February. Uh, that was really the first wide-scale media availability. And then the second and it was one... before all of this stuff unfolded. Before the scuttlebutt, yeah. And the Medicaid thing came to fruition and really at the start of the whole debate maybe about initiative. So really not a lot of access to the governor between uh, February and April. Right. When a lot of these issues really came into focus. And so I absolutely understand... You know, my fellow colleagues in the press corps having articles they're working on, stories they're working on, unanswered questions, uh, getting frustration from voters and residents and viewers. They have a lot of questions for the governor. And so it makes sense that if you don't have a lot of access to the governor, and I did. I, I, had a, I was able to tour a school uh, during the legislative session with the governor. And, and so I feel like I did have good access uh, to the governor and, and had a one-on-one at one point. But for folks who didn't have that, I understand if they have articles they're working on, they have questions, you know, it really can push a, for, a story forward to have the governor weigh in on something important that faces Idahoans. And so I understand wanting to take any and all availabilities to ask those questions, but I also understand the governor sort of, you know, hey, let's stay on message here and focus on my 100 days. But I think that maybe if there had been a press conference after the veto yes. that would give folks a chance to ask about the ballot initiative process, uh, to ask about Medicaid expansion. And I know and or this, a press conference after he signed the Medicaid bill into yeah. law. And, and so I think if there had been a couple of other, or even a press conference right when the legislative session adjourned last week on Thursday or Friday, then you would have a chance to address some of those questions. And then you could have the 100 Days press conference to focus on what your office did. And so I think people are still feeling out their roles, both in the press and in the governor's office. Yeah, it it, it was just, it was such a a soft rollout on those two issues. I mean, the two biggest decisions the governor had this session Mm -hmm. was what to do with the initiative bills and what to do with the Medicaid bill. And unfortunately, the initial Medicaid transmittal letter was uh, was botched on the governor's website. It was quickly corrected. But if the governor might have just been available at a couple more points during the year, the veto day, uh, the transmittal letter on the Medicaid bill, uh, a couple of other points, you know, then maybe you get some of those questions and you head those off at the pass. Um, I I don't know. It's not a perfect solution. I'm not in charge. There's a reason 
uh, <laughs> that I'm not governor, uh, and there's a good reason for that. But um, I, I think people are still growing into their roles, both the press and the uh, new administration, and, and it's just feeling each other out. But I absolutely understand how the governor wanted to tout his accomplishments and focus on what he had done in education. I also completely understand why the press corps has a lot of press uh, a lot of questions for the governor and has not always had a lot of opportunities uh, to get direct responses from the governor and that is very important people look to the governor for leadership uh, and it's very important to have a governor who can weigh in on things and um, and so I think that's a little bit of, of what we saw maybe yeah. does that does that make sense yeah, I know I, I, I was so. in the room and you I, I go back to the the veto and the, the rollout of it um, the letter was posted on the governor's website, I think uh, it was shortly after noon on a Friday afternoon, right. with no advance word that it was going to come. So um, I was on uh, Boise State Public Radio at that point, and we were talking in our reporter roundtable segment about, well, what is, he, what is Little going to do with this bill? Uh, why has he not really signaled his intentions one way or the other? At the same time that the veto uh, letter, unbeknownst to the panel of us, uh, was being posted. So, you know, not exactly a, um, not exactly the most, uh, you know, direct approach to uh, announcing really one of the most important decisions he had this uh, legislative session. And then you mentioned the uh, the flawed rollout of the, uh, the transmittal letter on Medicaid, the uh, the posting that it was a veto, but it wasn't a veto, it was a signing. And, you know, At the time when they did, in fact, direct all eyes to the governor's website on that particular day, and then at the worst possible moment, albeit very, very briefly, and it was corrected quickly, uh, mixed signals were sent on that, created some frustration, but corrected very quickly, yes. uh, I have to say. And at the end of the day, uh, probably didn't affect everyday Idahoans as much as it affected a political journalists on a deadline, and so you know, I get it. Very few people are here to cry for political journalists on deadline, but still, we'll that's, cry on our own behalf, right. which is kind of what we're talking about right. here. But you know, again, you know, big decisions the governor made. Uh, we did finally sort out why he made the decisions to some degree and what yeah. his thinking was, but uh, no special session but, uh, right. coming up. He made that perfectly clear on Wednesday. No special session. Uh, to address rules, they're going to reinstate them on a temporary basis. Um, but yeah, I, I think overall the governor is probably pretty happy with his legislative session, especially when it comes to education and some of his top priorities. And I got the sense that when it came to the rules in particular, the governor said, this isn't my first choice. I didn't ask for this, uh, but this is the situation that we're in. And so maybe he was having to answer a lot of questions for the legislature uh, after the legislature had left town probably wasn't the most comfortable situation in the world. But I think maybe... Uh, because make no mistake, this whole thing about rules is a is a power struggle right. between the legislative branch and the executive branch. Yes, so absolutely. He's in, a, yes. he's in the awkward position of explaining what he wants to do uh, as chief executive and the authority he's going to assert and his, uh, his branch is going to assert on this issue. So, But yeah, fairly good session from the governor as it relates to his top priorities. You can check out the story from the first 100 days uh, at idahoatnews.org. Continue to follow some of the fallout from the legislative session as we get into the summer and all that. Another big story this week, though, Kevin, um, and it has to do with higher education. You've tracked higher education affordability uh, and go-on numbers and enrollment numbers for a long time. 
Idaho families, again, should be bracing for tuition and fees to raise next year. Mm -hmm. Tell us why and tell us what you learned. Well, Wednesday afternoon, while you were in the, uh, the governor's 100 Days presser, the State Board of Education was meeting in Moscow and getting ready to uh, take action on tuition and fees for next academic year. And I was listening in on the, uh, on the stream. The bottom line here is the, uh, the State Board signed off on the requests that came from the universities and, and Lewis Clark State College. So uh, what this means for parents and students is that the fees are going to go up by several hundred dollars at each institution. The, uh, the, the range of increase goes anywhere from 4.9% increase at Boise State University, 6.1% at Idaho State University. Those percentage increases are significant to me anyway, because I, I juxtapose those against uh, the budget that the yeah. legislature approved for higher education this year. They approved a budget that uh, represents a 3.5% increase in spending uh, for higher education. So at the same time, the legislature gave an increase that you know really left some things uncovered. Mm -hmm. It only partially covered a pay increase for university employees, for college and university employees, leaving that to be covered somewhat by these fee increases. It continues a pattern that we've seen in Idaho for 40 years, and I have, I, I think, a really telling graphic on my story uh, from Wednesday that shows how much the state has collected over the past 40 years from uh, general fund, from state tax dollars, as opposed to tuition and fees from parents and students. And those two lines once we're very far apart, they are very close, they are in, they're on a collision course. And if this pattern continues, the day may come, as has happened in other states, where Idaho colleges and universities get more money from tuition and fees, i.e. parents and students. Shifting the burden to parents and students and as Idahoans to, as to pull the state budget. As opposed to funding from taxpayers. Five to three vote on, on the state board on these uh, fee increases. And really one of those times as a reporter where I was listening to the debate, and you know, we listen to some de debate that's kind of goofy and kind of seems to be off point. This was one time where I, I, both sides on this issue had really interesting points and really good points. I, I, and I, as a reporter, I was walking away saying, I, I, I can see both sides of the story here. Um, Opponents of the fee increases may be wanting a smaller fee increase saying, look, our go-on rates are low, they're stagnant, we have to do something with an eye towards all of these high school graduates who aren't continuing their education. What kind of message does it send to expect these students and their parents to come up with more money for higher education? Uh, David Hill kind of led the argument in favor of the universities, uh, the institution's proposals for fee increases, and he used Idaho State University as an example, and I thought he made some really interesting points. He said, ISU has tried to hold the line on fee increases. They've tried to do things like a tuition lock to keep uh, student tuition and fees frozen as students continue their education. It hasn't moved the needle on enrollment. Right. If anything, the enrollment at ISU dropped this year, and it's exacerbated some really related fiscal problems at ISU. Uh, less money coming in in terms of fees and less money coming in in terms of enrollment has all added up to some serious financial issues that uh, new president Kevin Satterley is wrestling with at this point. So he said, you know, we might have to give the universities, uh, the college and the universities, what they're asking for so they can start to keep up with things, so that they can pay for these uh, 
salary increases that the legislature didn't completely cover. So they can cover inflation so they can get ahead on some of these uh, some of these issues. So really interesting debate. And as I said, five to three vote on the state board. If you go to idahoednews.org, you'll see the breakdown, how much this is going to cost if you're going to the four institutions. Uh, spoiler, spoiler alert, if you're going to the U of I or Boise State University uh, next fall, uh, you can expect uh, fees that uh, cross the barrier to $8,000 and up. Yep. Uh, another, another milestone in terms of tuition and fees, not a, uh, not a, a milestone that uh, many people are going to celebrate, especially uh, uh, parents and students. But uh, you'll see the numbers there. You'll see the graphic that I've talked about and um, get a sense of what's coming down the pike next fall. And this all kind of comes together with some of the top education debates and initiatives that we follow. Uh, obviously, the state is making a concerted effort to have more of its population hold some type of post-secondary degree or certificate. This all relates together, and, and this is why we try to connect the dots um, and explain what's going on. But at a time when the state has really been frustrated with the inability to increase the share of the young adults' population with a post-secondary degree or certificate, tuition and fees are going up. And you've talked and reported over the years about how affordability is a significant barrier to higher education. Right. And, and listening to the debate on Wednesday, you didn't have to read between the lines too much to sense that there's you know, a realization that part of this really does stem from the legislature's decisions on higher education funding. Nobody came out and ripped the legislature for its its funding decisions. Not even um, Caleb Smith, who's the uh, student body president at Boise State, it talked about the need to do some things at, at Boise State, to invest in Boise State. So it wasn't really criticizing the proposal to increase fees. You know, he said that there are needs at Boise State that do need to be addressed. But here we are in a situation where these have to be addressed by going to students. Nobody really advocates the idea of, hey, let's put this on the backs of students and parents, but that's kind of what we're doing here. So A tough decision facing not an easy decision. our 17 and 18-year-olds uh, being and told, <laughs> and their parents being told that higher education is the future, but also having to, at the very beginning of their life, look on taking on $8,000 worth of obligations for one year at uh, in-state public colleges and universities, Which the two often translates into student loans. Yeah, uh, the two in particular, Boise State and Idaho, and the University of Idaho, that have gone over eight thousand dollars for the year in tuition and fees. A difficult decision uh, for seventeen, eighteen-year-olds and their parents. Um, certainly, I can respect that. Yeah. All right. Uh, a busy week. Yes. Uh, it just won't stop. But I think that's everything that I wanted to. Uh, get to this week. You can always stay up to date on all of our stories visiting the homepage, idahoednews.org. If you're big on social media, Twitter especially, give us a follow at Idaho Ed News. Break our biggest stories there, live tweet, some of the big announcements, some of the big meetings. That's a good way to uh, stay current throughout the week. And Clark, you will be on Idaho Reports tonight uh, on Idaho Public Television breaking down more of these issues. And you can watch that uh, Friday night at 8 o'clock, or you can catch it online afterwards. Yep, absolutely. Well, hey, thanks so much. We'll be back next week with another brand new edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. In the meantime, thank you so much, as always, for listening. I am Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.